I'm Jeff Cohen. Stacy Nechama Goldman thought she was going to be a conservative rabbi when she grew up. She even got her first pair of tefillin when she was just 12 years old. But a stint of intensive Torah study about Orthodox Judaism set her on a completely different path. Let's find out about her journey right now. Stacy, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you so much. So it's very nice to have you here. I appreciate you taking some time. And just from the intro, I can see this is going to be an interesting interview with a lot of twists and turns. But let's take it from the top at the very beginning. Give our listeners a sense of where you were born. So I was born in a suburb of Minneapolis, Minnesota. St. Louis Park is where I spent some of my younger years. Is that where your parents were from also? Or like, where did, where did they meet and where were they from? My whole family is from Minnesota. Two of my great-grandparents were born in Duluth, Minnesota. My claim to fame is we were going through one of my mother's paper drawers and we found an invitation addressed to my great-grandparents to one of Bob Dylan's son's bar mitzvahs. So, <laughs> wow, that's a collector's <laughs> item. Yeah, so old school Minnesota. And so give us a sense of how you would describe your family from a religious perspective in the early years. So my family was very traditional. My grandparents, my great-grandparents, everyone kept a kosher home. My mother, we were raised in a kosher home, and they were very involved in the synagogue. My great-grandparents, I think, were founding members. And I like to say, we drove to synagogue every week, but every week we drove to synagogue. (laughs) (laughs) And um, I went to Hebrew school, which was an excellent Hebrew school. I think it was known during the years that I went and before that. Not so much anymore. And in through elementary school, it was eight hours a week. And through high school, it was six hours a week. And it was really an excellent education. I'm really grateful for it. But your, your primary education was in a public school, and this was yes. supplemental? Yes, I went to public school. The Hebrew school had its whole bus system that would pick up kids from the public schools and bring them to the Hebrew school, and then a whole bus program to bring kids home to their homes. If you saw... Not that I recommend it, but the Cone brothers, whose mother lived in the same condominium complex as my grandmother. So if you saw their movie, An Innocent Man, you would see the exact same Tomatora of Minneapolis bus that I would take several times a week to get to (laughs) Tomatora. Very nice. So the way you're describing it, this sounds kind of, it's almost like in the middle of a lot of people I've interviewed who were reformed or conservative, but really weren't doing much at all other than maybe getting some Hanukkah gifts and having some matzah. Compared to someone who's all the way Orthodox, it seems like you're really in the middle, like you're in public school, but you're pretty into the Hebrew school experience and the kosher home. So does that feel like square in the middle of those two worlds, how you were raised? To a certain extent, I think. Unfortunately, even in the middle, you miss out on a lot. Like, I didn't know what Shavuot was. I didn't know about Yom Tov for holidays. I I didn't really know what Sukkot was. I knew what Simchat Torah was because that was a night that all the children went to synagogue. But otherwise, I didn't really know. I had Orthodox teachers in Hebrew school. I didn't identify with them. They were aliens to me. But I realized as my on my own religious journey that I had learned a tremendous amount from them. I knew how to daven halal. I knew all the words to all the Tehillim of halal. I knew how to do Kiddush for every single one of these Chagim that I'd never celebrated. It was very strange, all these things <laughs> that I knew that came into my head. Well, you were much further along than me. I didn't know what halal was. In addition to all these other holidays you mentioned that I also didn't know, but I certainly couldn't have done halal when I was a kid. Um, so I want to ask you a different question. You mentioned having like a bat mitzvah. And again, in the, in the more secular Jewish world, that can be the end of the line for a lot of people. Because there's not like a natural next thing to do after you have that celebration. Um, what was your story, though, 
both in terms of what kind of bat mitzvah you had and what happened afterwards? So my bat mitzvah, I'm 50 years old, so I think this is pretty amazing, was completely egalitarian. So I had to go in the Monday and Thursday before my bat mitzvah. My zaidi was actually the gabai. He started to become a lot more observant when his father passed away, which was when I was around five years old. So he would help the kids on Mondays and Thursdays to put on their tefillin. So I had to go in with my tefillin and my talis, and I led shacharit, and I read from the Torah. And then Shabbos morning, without the tefillin but with the talis, I also led the morning service and um, and lane from the Torah and did my half Torah and gave a speech. And that was par for the course. Not the whole parsha, just a little portion of it. And then there was a program at my synagogue, I actually think, the synagogue where I grew up, I think it's the last conservative shul that still does the full Parsha, all seven aliyot, because they have such an amazing pedagogical program for teaching kids how to lane. I didn't just memorize anything. I learned very seriously all the different trope, all the different names, all the different tunes. And then you had the opportunity after the Bar Mitzvah to continue as a tutor in the Saturday morning program, which is what it was called. And what was so amazing about that is that I grew up lower middle class, maybe, you know, bordering, maybe even a little bit poor. So without this program, I never would have been able to afford Camper Ma every summer because instead of getting paid a salary, we got money towards scholarships for camp and USY conventions and things like that that really helped build up my Jewish identity. Well, and I also want to go back to something you said about as a woman, the things that you did at your bar mitzvah, because myself also growing up, conservative it was very normal to me that like a boy and a girl kind of did the same thing right yeah but my friends now who are from from birth are like what like don't they know that women aren't supposed to do this and this and this but at the time you were doing it, you just used this phrase like par for the course so were you aware at the time that oh there's this other world where these are jobs that men do versus women or are you just this is how i was living and it just seemed natural to you so i think it was relatively recently my bat mitzvah was in 1984 which was the same year that the Jewish Theological Seminary started accepting women into the rabbinical school. So while we all did it, I think it was something I was proud of, knowing that not every young woman had this opportunity and that there was a whole group of Jews that didn't even let girls do this and that they couldn't be rabbis, which was mind-boggling to me because at this point in my family, I knew we had one of a distant cousin of my grandfather who lived in Crown Heights and was Lubavitch. But otherwise, aside from some of my Hebrew school teachers, I didn't know anybody who wasn't a conservative Jew. I barely knew any Reformed Jews even. So it all seemed very foreign to me. So then I mentioned in the intro this idea of getting to fill in when you were 12 and the thought of becoming a rabbi. I'm assuming you mean like a conservative rabbi. So that really is the opposite of like what was going on with my friends when they were 12 or 13. Like they're starting to think about maybe what they want to do for a living or what they're going to be, where they're going to go to college. But how is this idea like forming in your mind at such a young age that you might want to pursue this? Well, I think it really started to form a couple of years later when I started going to Camp Ramah, which was um, the summer before ninth grade. And I went to Camp Ramah in Wisconsin, which was maybe one of the more serious Camp Ramahs. And it attracted on the staff students from JTS, Columbia JTS, Barnard JTS, and that really expanded my notion of, A, where I could go to college. I remember the smartest kids in my public high school, after they graduated high school, they went to University of Minnesota 
in Morris, Minnesota. I don't even know where Morris, Minnesota was, but that was <laughs> <laughs> that was the prestigious place that people went. So it was very unusual to go out of state, let alone, you know, an Ivy League college. So so that really opened my horizons in terms of what was possible and I have to credit my parents who really prioritized Jewish education. I was the only kid at Hebrew school on Halloween night. <laughs> They'd make me go. <laughs> I'd have to go trick-or-treating afterwards. So that was the home I grew up in. Whatever limited means my own parents in terms of their own education had, they knew it was important. Right. So what kind of kids were you meeting through that camp experience? Were these conservative kids, orthodox kids? Like you said, it was kind of opening your eyes to the different paths that you could take that maybe you hadn't seen in Minnesota. So what, what were you seeing by the people you were meeting? Oh, that's interesting. So in Minnesota, I had great Jewish friends who I considered sort of my authentic friends. I had very nice high school friends. My best friend in high school, who I'm still close with, was a Mormon. And I think because we were both minorities, we became very close to each other. (laughs) Yeah. But outside, and she was actually, I want to say, my first glimpse into a religious household with a big family. She had five siblings. So that also kind of opened my mind for Orthodox Judaism in a weird way. So I had all these Jewish friends and we together went on this path of USY. And then we started out at Herzl Camp, which is kind of famous because Robert Zimmerman is graffitied all over. Back to Bob Dylan and Thomas Friedman went there. People from Minnesota are always very proud of other people from Minnesota. So so then when I went to Camp Ramah, though, there were kids who came from much more observant backgrounds than I did. I met people who were actually Shomer Shabbat. It was my first experience keeping Shabbos in a quasi-Camp Ramah kind of way. We had this thing that you couldn't turn on the lights in the cabins, but you could use your own flashlight. (laughs) And some of the kids went to Jewish day school in Chicago. I had a Crown Jewish Academy. I don't know how observant their own families were, but they were in Orthodox Jewish day school. So that also exposed me to more ways of practicing Judaism. Both the counselors and some of the higher faculty really introduced me to an observant way of life, I think. So now take me inside as the high school years are ending and you're thinking about college, where do you end up going and what are you thinking you're going to study? So by then I was I was so involved in so many different Jewish things, USY and my synagogue, some Israel action stuff that I did that I decided I wanted to go to a school in a huge Jewish, with a huge Jewish population where I could just be Jewish and I wouldn't have to do Jewish. So, and then also based on the staff at Camp Ramah, so I applied to both Columbia College and Barnard College with JTS. So not Columbia JTS, it's Columbia College. And I got into both. But JTS offered me an honor to be in the honors program and a big scholarship. So that was super helpful. And I went to the accepted students day. It was in the same week, both Columbia and Barnard. And first of all, when I was at the Barnard one, somebody brought up Columbia and I said, oh, I'm choosing between the two. And she said, really? Where are you from? And I said, Minneapolis. And she said, oh, geographic distribution. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so that was that was one of my introductions nice. to New, New York Judaism. She was Jewish. But um, in any case, I went to the Columbia Accepted Students Day, and we met in a big lecture hall, and they handed out a piece of paper and said, here's what's going on for the day. Enjoy yourself. Have fun. And then I went to the Barnard Accepted Students Day, and they 
had a whole program where they were so excited for us to be there. And they said, you young women are the future of our country and we want to nurture you and we want to bring out your special gifts and how women can impact the future. And this is so amazing. And I was so inspired by this idea of, as a young woman, having a unique gift to give to the world. This is in, I graduated high school in 1990. And so taken by the warmth and the, the love that I felt there that independent of the JTS honors program and scholarship, I genuinely wanted to go to Barnard College and be part of a woman's college and what it had to offer me. And my, my decision to just be Jewish didn't last very long. I immediately <laughs> got involved in conservative Jews at Columbia and um, some Israel stuff and various other things on campus. But it was really there on the college campus that I met peers who were modern Orthodox. So in Hebrew school, it was some of my teachers at Camp Ramah. It was really mostly counselors or staff people who I, you would probably call them conservadox today because I think everyone was really egalitarian there. So it was in college through Barnard that I really met peers and became good friends with them. They, being from out of town, would invite me for Shabbos and for all the holidays to spend with their families. And I always say these are not Kiruv professionals. These were young people who had no agenda. In fact, I remember one friend being annoyed as I was on my religious journey and staying at her house for Shabbat that I would no longer turn her bedroom lights on and off for her. <laughs> so <laughs> I teach in a high school. And when they graduate, I try to gift all the girls traveling candlesticks. And I tell them how how I was inspired by girls just like them, not key roof professionals, not rabbis, just girls like them inviting me home for Shabbos. So I hope that they'll do the same when they get to college. So I want to just go back to something you just mentioned about feeling inspired when you visited the school and how they said that you can be like a female future leader. Was In your mind, was that in the Jewish world, in the secular world? Like what did becoming a leader mean to you at that point in your life? At that point or soon after, I had decided officially to become a a rabbi. I was going back and forth between lawyer and rabbi because I knew I would have to make a commitment to keeping Shabbat, among other things. And that actually is what planted the seed for me to become Orthodox because JTS at the time, so I mentioned before, it was just six years prior that they were accepting women into the rabbinate. And the reason for that, that they were able to accept women was Rabbi Joel Roth had written a tshuva about women taking on the obligation of praying three times a day so that they would be an equal level of obligation to men. And that way they would be able to pray for the congregation and take everyone out of their obligation for that prayer. So that meant at JTS, there were two different minyanim. There was a downstairs minyan that had a mechitza. I don't think it exists anymore. And then there was the upstairs minyan that went according to this Rabbi Roth tshuva. So that meant that if you showed up for services Saturday morning and there were seven men and five women, they would go up to each of the women and say, have you taken on the obligation? And if you had, you could count. Wow. But if you hadn't, you didn't count in the minion. So I was getting very different messages from JTS and from my secular women's college about the unique gift that women have to give to the world and how women count as women. And at JTS, I'm being told, you don't count unless you decide to become like a man. And I only realized this much later 
that those seeds were planted already then with that Roth Chuva minion. There's, there's another part of your story from what you just said that if I were in your shoes, I would have found very confusing because if, if I'm being inspired and I'm thinking I want to become a female rabbi, but at the same time, I'm getting these Shabbos invites from like a modern Orthodox crowd. I don't even know if I would realize that at some point these two things are going to come to a head and I like can't be both of them at the same time. Or if at that stage you're thinking, oh, this is great. I'm learning a lot more about Shabbos and I'm seeing how, how this population lives. But separate from that, I'm also planning to become a rabbi. And this is just like helping round out my knowledge base for what I want to do for my career. Yeah, I didn't enjoy going to shul with my friends and sitting behind the mechitza. I wasn't like opposed to it. But I mostly enjoyed just the experience of Shabbat and all the parents were so nice and welcoming to me that it didn't seem contradictory to me. It just seemed like a part of my journey. And my friends weren't so religious. So <laughs> so it makes sense for how you were thinking about it at that time in your life. So now I want to bring in another piece to your story. And I've done enough of these interviews now that when Israel enters the picture, there seem to be like these turning points in people's story. And so in reading your bio, I can see that Israel plays a big role. I think it was your junior year of college where you, was that the first time you went to Israel or you had gone before? So I went on a post-bat mitzvah trip with my mom and my grandparents. And then I went on Alexander Moss High School in Israel, which is a wonderful academic program. I went during my junior year of high school and you got high school credit for the classes. And it was just like a survey of Jewish history and going to the places that you did. And that, that was a turning point in my life also where I decided to keep kosher more strictly outside of my home and made some more commitments. But then junior year of college, which was what kids like me did. So you didn't do a gap year. If you were affiliated, you went to Israel for your junior year. If you were very affiliated like I was, you went to Hebrew University as opposed to Tel Aviv or Ben-Gurion. And they had this one-year program. And at the time, there were 700 college kids in the program, from Jewish kids from all over the country. Wow. Um, I met my husband there. So... I remember thinking to myself before I left, I know what conservative Judaism is, and I knew I had some religious relatives in Israel, and I said to myself, I'm going to see what it is I'm rejecting. I'm going to explore it so I can be educated about it. And I remember actually, I think it was at the airport, talking to this older man who was a retired conservative rabbi, and he said to me, Orthodox Judaism, it's like the concentrated orange juice. You need to add the water. And that's what conservative <laughs> Judaism is. <laughs> so I got to Israel. My husband and I actually were on the same flight together. And we immediately became a couple very quickly. And he also had a lot of religious relatives in Israel. And every Shabbat, I think there was maybe one Shabbat that we stayed in the dorms at Hebrew University. Every Shabbat, we would go to different family members or even get set up by Jeff Seidel, different people's homes. And um, very slowly, it started to enter into me until the very last Shabbat of that year before we were going back to America. We took one class together at Hebrew, Rav Cook in the Talmudic tradition. It was with a rabbi, Dr. Alon Goshen Gutstein. So we, wanted, we decided we wanted to spend, have a Shabbat meal with him. So he agreed, he was available, but he said Rabbi Shlomo Karlebach was in town that Shabbos in Jerusalem, and he was having a Shabbaton, and we'd be going to the Kotel. So we walked to the Kotel together. We got there late. It was already dark, but that doesn't bother Rabbi Karlebach or his followers. And he sat on top of the Mechitza, 
and he led Carly Bach Kabbalat Shabbat. So I'm sure you've davened in a <laughs> you've davened in a Kabbalat Shabbat with Carly Bach tunes, right? So this was Rav Shlomo Carly Bach leading Kabbalat Shabbat, sitting on top of the mechitza. He kissed both me and my husband on the forehead when we met. <laughs> so I, don't, I know he's kind of a controversial figure, but this was a very formative time. So it was at that minion at the Kotel, doing Kabbalat Shabbat, being surrounded by these amazing spiritual women with their long flowy dresses, singing Kabbalat Shabbat, that it put me over the edge of whatever had been left bothering me about Orthodox Judaism in terms of mechitza or whatever was perceived as separate but unequal. And it was one of the most spiritual experiences of my life to date, I would say, being surrounded by these women and and feeling such a spiritual high that I knew in that moment could never be achieved in a mixed seating environment. And I, I couldn't go back after that. You brought your future husband into this story by saying you met on the plane. So you've known each other like less than a year at this point. What What's his background? And is he going through the same kind of feeling you are? Because like the relationship, I guess, is getting more serious. But you're also having this religious thing going on. Yeah. What's happening for him? So he grew up very similar to me. I always say he was one up on my family because they built a sukkah every year. But he also had a kosher home. His mother was going through her own spiritual journey throughout his life and, um, his entire family has become religious. In the meantime, he has two brothers. And so he was born in Israel. His parents were part of Shomer Hatzair, like secular kibbutz movement, and they were founding members of a moshav, Moshav Neveilan. And that's where he was born until he was six. And then he grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico. That's a big change. <laughs> yeah, that's what his parents did not want to go back to New York. They had some family in Albuquerque. So that's where he grew up until high school. Now they live in Las Vegas. And through this Moshav experience, when they left the Moshav and came back to America, they became religious. They became Lubavitch. And my husband would go visit them all through high school. It was still maintained friendship with the twin girls who were his age in the family. And so he always said to himself, wow, when I get married and have a family, this is what I want. So he likes to say he's FFG from from girlfriend. And (laughs) (laughs) I like to say I just sped him along on the process that he had already committed himself to when he was a young man in high school. His first set of tefillin was my tefillin for my bat mitzvah. (laughs) He didn't own tefillin. (laughs) Yeah. Very nice. So now take us into the part when you come back from Israel. I mean, you had thoughts of what you were going to do career-wise when you went, but it seems like some of that has changed on your way back. And where is your future husband at this point after the Israel program? Okay. So he went to Penn. So we went. I went to back to Barnard. He went back to Penn for our senior year. We were long distance. And I still wanted to be a conservative rabbi, but I was a little cuckoo now. I was like a flaming balchuva. It's funny because my education at JTS, I had been able to avoid some of the more controversial professors. I don't think I'm going to say any names right now, but... But my senior year, I realized I hadn't taken this basic 101 intro to Jewish philosophy course. <laughs> and I would sit on the side in my skirt, and I, even though I wasn't married, I'd wear a hat. I, don't, I like, looked very frummy. And, um, and I would just make little snide, frummy comments of everything that he was saying in this Jewish philosophy class. <laughs> we actually, several years later... My husband's aunt and uncle were honored at their conservative synagogue, and we went, and the same professor was the keynote speaker at this event. 
And he was speaking and I made a snide comment in the middle. And in the middle of his speech, he said, oh, I remember you. (laughs) (laughs) So um, anyway, my motivations changed. My ambition changed. Instead of wanting to be like the first female rabbi of a thousand person congregation, I decided I wanted to go into education. And I was going to become a principal through becoming a rabbi. That would be like a fast track to being a principal of a Solomon Schechter day school, and I'd make everybody religious. So that was my motivation. So I applied to rabbinical school my senior year. In the meantime, because of this experience in Israel, I was becoming less comfortable with some of the requirements for rabbinical school, one of them being talis and tefillin every day. But I still, I still wanted to go, and I was still doing it occasionally and still trying to keep up with that. And um, by the time I got to rabbinical school the following year, so my husband graduated from Penn, and we got engaged a few months after we graduated. And so he lived a block and a half away from me my first year of rabbinical school. I was obsessed with learning. We would see each other on Shabbos, but I said, if you want to see me during the week, you can if you join me for my 11.30 p.m. Parsha Chavruta. So he would sometimes join for that. I was learning from 8 a.m. to midnight every single day obsessively. And thank God my rabbinical school class had a lot of really amazing students in it. So I was learning. I was enjoying the learning. It was very intense. In the meantime, I took my first education courses, which I hated. <laughs> and I did not... Why? Why did you hate them? I They were like psychology slash philosophy courses. And I think it's impossible to put those things, to really understand those things until you're actually in the classroom studying. And it just seems so far-fetched from actual teaching. And even today, I'm a teacher, but I don't have a degree in education, which you don't need for private school. And I just want to teach Torah. Like, that's what motivates my teaching, is just my excitement with learning and my wanting to share it. So I don't want to learn how I should share that. I just want to share it. (laughs) Right. So that really turned me off. And then somebody told on me that I wasn't putting on tefillin every day. Uh Uh-oh. And so that got me called into the dean's office, who was really nice and really supportive of me. And he looked at my transcript, and he realized that I was very close to getting a master's in Talmud based on the courses I had taken. And so he very kindly suggested, because my husband and I were getting married that summer, and my rabbinical school class was going to Israel. And my husband was a little bored in his job. He was doing mergers and acquisitions, some bank, and he wanted to try something new. So I really wanted to continue my studies for the second year, and I would get a master's then with my rabbinical school class. The problem was that the financial aid package I had was only for the rabbinical school. And here I was officially transferring out of the rabbinical school class. He was going to let me stay with them for the Gemara and Halacha classes at Machon Shachter, which was a J- similar to JTS in, in Jerusalem. And when I explained this to him that I couldn't afford to go without the financial aid package, he called up the financial aid office and said, please transfer all of Stacy's financial aid to the graduate school from the rabbinical school. It was so kind. They were so supportive. I left the rabbinical school with very good feelings. And not only that, but the program they had set up for my class, which a lot of the my classmates had spent a year in yeshiva, seminary. It was a very unusual class in terms of the amount of background everyone had, which I was able to 
gain by the skin of my teeth by spending the summer before at Drisha in Manhattan. And that's actually a crazy story also, because I was called into the bursar office at Barnard, and I was really worried because, you know, financial aid was such a huge part of my being able to be there. My husband and I both joke that we were able to go to the colleges we went to because our parents were poor enough. You know, if you're solidly middle class, you can't afford these colleges. So we had tremendous scholarships. So I was terrified I was being called into the bursar. So I went in. And they said, we were looking over your financial aid records, and we realized that the package we've been giving you this past four years was based on your living in the JTS dormitories. And we see here that you've been living in the Barnard dorms, which are actually more expensive, so we owe you $14,000. No, it was crazy. And they said, please go pick up your check in the office at the end of this week. So... Like, I think I can make time for that. So this was literally min hashamayim because it allowed me to spend the summer in New York learning at Drisha, which was one of the only opportunities for women's intensive learning at the time, really allowed me to get a real foundation of Gemara learning, Halacha learning, Tanakh learning, Machshava, all of these things, and allowed me to start rabbinical school in this very special class with this very special group of people. I recognize also that I graduated college in 1994, so I entered rabbinical school in the fall of 1994, that if not for my rabbinical school experience at JTS, I don't think I would have had that opportunity of that kind of intense learning and building up that foundation. So after the second year of rabbinical school, where I was actually in the graduate school, I then transferred to Nishmat, and I was almost privileged as a woman as opposed to a man in making this transition, because I was now at the forefront of Orthodox women's learning. I had this background in Talmud that so many women didn't have, for sure not Orthodox women. And so here I was at the forefront, and I was able, I was accepted into this program at Nishmat, which was like a kolal. So I was getting a stipend every month for learning at Nishmat. And I always say for the men who might have had sympathies towards the way I was feeling, who might have felt similarly, it would have taken so much more courage for them to make that transition because they would have been so behind a typical Orthodox man's education. Right. And here I was at the forefront. I was like a pioneer, so respected, mm -hmm. you know, and like just a totally different world. So that was my transition. It's interesting that also the part you said about being turned in, which is like a scary time at the moment, but then you see that these little things sometimes set you on the right exactly. path and have like a happy ending when you didn't expect exactly. it. And it also kind of accelerated this fact that you had these parallel paths going in your life that were going to come to a head at some point, and this maybe made some of that come to a head faster than it might have otherwise. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. My husband likes to joke, as far as I was concerned, I was marrying a conservative rabbi. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so what are you thinking is going to happen at, at the end of this at that point in time? Right. So my husband that year, first of all, I was pregnant that year. So my son, my oldest son was born and my husband applied to graduate school and he was accepted to Harvard Business School. And as my mother-in-law likes to say, you can't put on your resume that you're accepted. So we were sure <laughs> that we would spend two years in business school and living in Boston and then three years working, making enough money to save up to move back to Israel. Didn't happen that way. So ironically, the only thing I was qualified to do when we went to Boston, where I had to work, was to teach. 
So I got a job at Maimonides High School, and unbeknownst to me, Ravaneet Hankin, the head of Nishmat, who is an incredible woman and really my role model, and so privileged to have a relationship with her still to this day, and she should live and be well. She had been to Boston that year, and the principal had told her that he got an applicant from Nishmat, namely me, which I had not told her yet because I was so worried she'd be disappointed I was leaving Israel. And um, so Ravaneet Hankin assured him that I was I was fine. So when I went to interview at Maimonides, it was basically a welcome to our faculty meeting. It wasn't really an interview. And so he said, do you have any questions for me afterwards? And I said, yes. Aren't you at all concerned about my JTS rabbinical school background? And he said, Ravaneet Hankin has assured us that you're a Yerat Shamayim. And I think you actually have something to offer our students that some of our other teachers don't have. So that also, Ravaneen Haken really cleared the path for me to go into Jewish education, which is now what I do. So, <laughs> Right. So what were you teaching there specifically? So I was, speaking, I was teaching actually Ivrit and Navi and Tehillim to all grades from 7th through 12th. So that's like a great experience that you fell into courtesy of your husband's yeah. Business school acceptance. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So now fast forward. So he, he gets his degree and you have an opportunity now to figure out like where you want to go from there. So what happens um, post-graduation? So he got a job in Fort Lee, New Jersey, which is just over the border from Manhattan. His boss was near Barkat, the previous mayor of Jerusalem, when he was still a venture capitalist. And we decided to move to Riverdale because Rabbi Avi Weiss at the time was opening up this program for post, right post-college to learn intensively. I had my son, who was almost two and a half, and I was not eight months pregnant when we moved with my second son. So I only wanted something very part-time. So I had this learning opportunity, so we decided to live in Riverdale. And I then became a year later the congregational intern at Hebrew Institute of Riverdale. I think I was the third one there. And that was also a fantastic experience. And I got a lot of teaching experience, pastoral experience, more learning experience. I joke that had we stayed in Riverdale, I think for sure I would have become a Maharat, like it's, you know, still continuing in this path. And then we moved to Philadelphia, and we, we frummed out in Philly. <laughs> <laughs> so tell our listeners what that means. What did you like add into your life that made you just say that? So every place we'd lived until then, Katamon neighborhood in Jerusalem, Brookline in Massachusetts, Riverdale in New York, were like modern Orthodox bastions of like, you know, high intellect, high ambition, wonderful, lovely people, but not a lot of spirituality. And my son started kindergarten in Philadelphia at this very traditional school. And my son came home from kindergarten singing this song about Midos. I had no idea what Midos were. So here I was, one of the few women in the Philly community who could learn a page of Gemara. And I didn't know what my kindergartner was coming home talking about. And I saw for the first time people, there's a ton of Bali Chuva in my community. I always ask my students every year, raise your hand if both your parents grew up Shomer Shabbos. And this year I had my highest percentage yet of four girls out of 16 wow. who both their parents grew up Shomer Shabbos. It's mm -hmm. just, it's really miraculous. 
So I saw people in my new community in Philadelphia who weren't just learning Torah intellectually, but they were learning Torah for the sake of becoming better people. And this was something that I'd never encountered before. I had this revelation that if Torah just stays in your head, it's nothing, that it has to go from your head and make its way through this most narrow passage of your neck and enter into your heart. And that it's almost even idolatry if it's not making that passage. And and so that was like one of the most humbling experiences for me. In addition to my children getting older and realizing I had no parenting skills. <laughs> and so I started taking a parenting course with a woman in my community who I'm still very close to. That was also through Torah sources. It was a parenting course through Torah sources. That was also very humbling and yet one of a very formative experience, both in terms of myself as a mother, but mostly in terms of myself as a Jewish mother and forging this new identity as a Jewish mother and as a Jew. And, and really, it just opened up vistas of, of what Judaism was beyond just stuffing information into my brain and behaving in a certain way. It was, it was uniting my soul with my heart and my head in a way that I'd never experienced before. And so that's what it meant that we firmed out in Philly. And then <laughs> my kids also being in this school, which was such an incredible education through eighth grade, they they were influenced. And so things that weren't priorities in our family, like going to Minion or different things like that, became real priorities for my kids. My husband would say to my sons when they were teenagers, why can't you be normal teenagers and sleep in late on Sunday? Be like, <laughs> no, we have to go to Minion. You have to come with us, Ava. We have to go. <laughs> um, so let me just go back a little bit. When I was at Nishmat, it was the year that Ravneet Hinkin was starting the Yoetzet program. And while I was there that year, was they were interviewing the first class of Yoetzet. And I knew I couldn't interview because I knew we were going back to America. My chavruta became one of the first Yoetzet. This was my son's 25. He's going to be 25 next month. So this was 25 years ago. And um, so then we ended up staying in America. But my husband had a very high power demanding job and there was no way that I could commute to New York for a couple of days a week with five young children. So I, I couldn't do it when it came to America. And then I guess it was five years ago, they decided to open up the program in a remote way so that you didn't have to live in the tri-state area. And I was the, in the inaugural class for, we were doing zoom before COVID <laughs> and, <laughs> and so that's how I was finally able to, as um, my husband likes to say, come full circle in terms of my goals and ambitions as a Jewish woman and become a Yoetz at Halakha. Okay, and so I now know what that is, but I would imagine a few years ago I would not have. So for people who are listening who don't know that term, can you just explain right. it? Right, so it's only it's a certification program only through Nishmat, and it's only in the laws of Tarat Mishpacha having to do with mikveh and when husband and wife can be together. And we also have a medical curriculum alongside where we learn all areas where the, this area of halacha intersects with women's health, both psychological, physical, sexual, emotional. And it's a little over two years. It is the hardest thing I ever did. And I now serve as the Yuatzit Halacha for Las Vegas and also Philadelphia. 
and I get phone calls from women with questions that they might not feel comfortable asking a rabbi. I'll sometimes be able to answer it myself. Sometimes I'll be the conduit for it to the rabbi. I'm very close with my rabbi here. I teach a lot of kalas before they get married and do a lot of education and teaching on this subject. So what makes it different from when I said before, had we stayed in Riverdale, I might have been a Maharat, is that Nishmat really is only focused on this one area where they feel that it's imperative for women to be learned and be a resource for other women in this area. You had a view of what you could become as like a major female leader in the Jewish world, but it evolved as you became more religious. So like, what's your perspective now looking back on like the possibilities for a woman in Judaism who wants to take on a leadership position? There is so much more educational opportunities available to women. So I think keep learning is the most important thing, even when you're in the midst of having children. I think also the fact that I always prioritize learning, even when my boys were little, meant that both my married boys now are married to very educated Jewish women. One of my daughters-in-law is actually in the Yoetzot program in Jerusalem, and we're going to be the first two generations of Yoetzot. Very nice. Which is really exciting. So, and both of their mothers, both my daughters-in-law mothers, have expressed to me how grateful they are that their daughters married boys who appreciate and respect their learning. And and so I, I think I take that as the greatest compliment of whatever I did wrong as a mother. <laughs> I definitely modeled female learning and the importance of female learning. So I think that that's key to be educated, to educate yourself, even if you don't even don't get frustrated by lack of opportunity to keep educating yourself, keep learning. And there's so much available to learn right now. Um, and also I did kind of what's called the sequencer. I think Madeline Albright was one of the first who just passed away. She was Jewish. She found out later in life was one of the first to represent this idea that you don't have to be career woman from day one. You can step away from it for parts of your life to be with your children, to raise your children. You know, I'm 50 years old and I just became a Yoatza two years ago and I really feel like I'm realizing my potential and and I did have all that quality time raising my children as well. Okay, so last question before we go to our lightning round. You just said I'm realizing my potential, not that I have realized my potential. So that tells me you still have more left to do that's on your radar. So what are you thinking about over the next few years? I don't know. I'm thinking about more teaching opportunities. You heard me in Fairlawn, New Jersey, right? Yes. So I'm thinking that was like my first scholar in residence type opportunity, which was through the OU as opposed to being a Yoetzet. So so looking into more of those types of opportunities of speaking around the country and um, doing more adult education. I love my high school kids also, but expanding my reach in terms of education and what I have to offer. Beautiful. All right, Stacey, let's close with our lightning round. I'm going to ask you a few super fast questions. Are you ready? Okay. Okay. So tell our listeners, what is like a super influential book that you read along the way of your own journey as you became more observant? Reading Nechama Leibowitz's studies on the Parsha and seeing all the different sources that she brings in and how she compares and contrasts really opened my eyes to what it means to learn Torah. And what about if we have a listener who currently views themselves as conservative, but is like inspired by what you're saying and thinking, you know what, I want to take like a first step. I want to do a first thing. What, what would you say to someone who's like, how do I begin? So educate yourself, reach out to people. I'm sure there's a Chabad where you live 
and there nobody's going to judge you. Nobody's going to try to force you to be what you aren't or to force you not to go to your conservative synagogue anymore, but just to broaden your horizons, expand who you know, what types of Jews you know, and, and learn from everybody. And in your story, you mentioned a few trips to Israel. So what's like a favorite place you went to besides the Kotel, which we know was like a major moment for you, but give me another place that you've been that really inspired you. I love Sfat. There's actually an amazing mikvah in Sfat. I'm involved in Momentum, which is like a birthright for moms. And on part of that tour, they go to Tzfat and they, they see this mikvah and it's fully handicap accessible and it's really beautiful and it's a really spiritual place run by these amazing women there. And it's I, it's if you're a woman and you go to Tzfat, it's a great opportunity. Got it. You made a nice plug for mikvah, so well done. <laughs> All right, last question for you. You mentioned that you're starting to do more speaking gigs. So is there like an interesting or unique question that someone has asked you after you spoke? Somebody asked a question about financial compensation for women versus men and career opportunities. And that's definitely something we have to work on to open more arenas for women. I think the Yoetzot are a good start. There are synagogues who hire rabbis whose wives are Yoetzot, who get their own independent salary from the synagogue, and um, creating opportunities for non-married Jewish women to be able to excel in Jewish leadership opportunities. So that's, you know, something that I think is difficult for a lot of women right now and something I think about. All right. Well said. You are officially out of the lightning round. And Stacy, I want to thank you for joining me today on Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you so much. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit taklismedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard, or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at taklismedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.